talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at Black Panther Wakanda Forever, released in November 2022, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach announcing plans for a stage version of I, Daniel Blake, Martin Scorsese introducing the Scorsese screen season on Turner Classic Movies, or Jennifer Aniston telling her untold story to Us Weekly instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I thought of Black Panther Wakanda Forever shortly. Meanwhile, joining us to give his thoughts on Black Panther Wakanda Forever is quiz expert David Smith. David, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, or whatever the hell it's called these days, at David underscore Strathd, S-T-R-A-T-H-D-E-E. And I'm also on pretty much every other social media and Twitter replacement out there. Okay, so before we go any further, David, what happens in Black Panther Wakanda Forever? So, this film is the sequel to 2018's Black Panther, which starred Chadwick Boseman as Prince T'Challa. And we can't start without mentioning the elephant in the room, which is that this film comes after the untimely and unexpected passing of Chadwick Boseman in 2020 after a long and entirely private battle with cancer. And after coming to terms with his death, Marvel and Ryan Coogler and the team decided not to recast the role. And so this film opens with Prince T'Challa dying off screen of an unspecified illness as Shuri desperately attempts to synthetically recreate the heart-shaped herb that gives Black Panther his powers and which was burned by Killmonger in the first film. One year later, Queen Ramonda, T'Challa and Shuri's mother, has taken the throne and the power vacuum and loss of Black Panther has led the countries of the Western world to try and claim Wakanda's vibranium. And when Okoye and her army stop them, they seek it elsewhere in the world, find a deposit in the ocean. So the Americans send a navy ship to try and plunder this and end up incurring the wrath of the underwater nation of Talokan, led by Namor or Namor who kills all the Americans and then immediately goes to Wakanda, as you do, and tells them to find whoever built the machine they used to detect the vibranium, or he'll wage war on Wakanda for telling the world that there is more vibranium out there at the end of the first film. Okoye and Shuri travel to Massachusetts, track down teenage tech genius Riri Williams, who was the person who invented the machine by accident while doing a research project at her school. MIT, I should say. But before they can take her back to Wakanda, the Talakan people attack them and they kidnap Shuri and Riri and take them to their underwater home in the ocean, as opposed to underwater homes elsewhere. Queen Ramonda is aghast at the fact that she has now lost both her children. So she strips Okoye of her rank and she travels to Haiti to meet with Nakia, who was Prince T'Challa's love interest in the first film. And we find out that ever since the events of Infinity War, she has been living in Haiti. She has left Wakanda behind. She didn't come to the funeral. But because Shuri is missing, she is enlisted by Ramonda to try and find out where she is. And Nakia successfully infiltrates Talokan, kills a couple of the Talokan people, retrieves Riri and Shuri, and in response, Talokan attack Wakanda and kill Queen Ramonda. Because of this, Shuri goes back to try and recreate the heart-shaped herb using the technology that she took from Talokan. She successfully does that and she becomes the new Black Panther. And she leads Wakanda on a ship into the ocean to wage war on Talakan, which we'll get into later, but I think is one of the dumbest strategic moves in any film I've ever seen. And she battles Namor, 
takes him to the beach, wins the fight, and forces him to yield. And Wakanda and Talokan become allies. And in case you can't tell by this incredibly long and rambling synopsis, this is quite a long film. And that's where uh, things are left. Shuri becomes the new Black Panther. M'Baku becomes the new King of Wakanda at the end of the film. And Riri Williams becomes Ironheart because she has created her own sort of Iron Man suit. And with Wakanda's help, turns it into a fully-fledged cyber suit. So we will see her in a new spin-off at some point. Yes, as you say, it really is a long film. But before I go into my usual next question, I just wanted to address the issue that you mentioned about the fact Chadwick Boseman wasn't recast. I am aware there were sort of recast T'Challa campaigns, which I appreciate some people involved in them will have had genuine intentions. I mean, even in that instance, I personally can't see why having a new actor playing was better than having Shuri as the Black Panther. I really struggle to understand that. But most of the most prominent voices behind those campaigns, you didn't have to look far to find a GoFundMe. You know, I found that quite dishonest. And I also think apparently the cast were absolutely against the idea of recasting him. And Ryan Coogler, who originally had written a script based around Chadwick Boseman, said he didn't want the part recast. And I think really he gets the last word on that. And there's just something about that whole, the persistence of it, even when the film came out, these campaigns are still going. It just didn't sit very well with me. I just wanted to get that out of the way, really. It is something we have to address when we are talking about this film and talking critically about it, is that this is one of those situations where like, they had no idea. They were already working on this sequel for a couple of years and they had no idea what Chadwick was going through. So they were as blindsided as all of us. And so they had to rewrite this film pretty much from scratch because they'd lost their main character. And I think this is different to something like Rhodey, where it was just it was a recasting of a supporting character. This was a major, a major figure, not just a major character, but a major figure of the last few years. The first Black Panther film meant so much to so many people and was seen as such a cultural milestone. You cannot just put a new face in there and pretend nothing's happened. I think the way that they did it is probably as good as they could have. I had my uh, criticisms about the film the first time I saw it, but you always have to caveat that with the fact that for them to bring out the film that they did in what was basically, what, two years? I think they've done an exceptional job to have a film that is is this good? It's not perfect, but it is this good, given what everyone would have been going through during the writing, during the production, during everything about it. They've done the best that they possibly could under such horrendous circumstances. Well, on a lighter note then, David, how much did you know about, you know, it's still not clear whether they want us to call him Namor or Namor, but about him or about Riri Williams before you saw this? I'll start with Riri Williams. I knew nothing about Riri Williams at all. Namor I had heard before because I remember it probably was around the time of Infinity War. No, it would have been Endgame because it's the when Okoye is talking to Black Widow about there's an earthquake under the ocean and everyone's going, oh my God, that's Namor. And I'm going, what's a Namor? So I looked it up and yeah, he's kind of Marvel's equivalent of Aquaman. I believe in the original comics, he actually does live in Atlantis. It's kind of cool actually doing a bit of research about him because he's like one of the oldest characters in comic book history, I think. He's from like 1937 or something. He's one of Marvel's original three along with, I think the Human Torch, his debuts in the same issue. And then Captain America came out the next year or something like that. So like this is such a long time between his first live action appearance and his first comic book appearance. I thought he was really cool. I loved the adaptations that they did to make him more modern and given the backstory that he does. I do think they should have decided on a pronunciation. I can understand why they didn't. It's, I kind of just think pick one and stick with it because like, he introduces himself to Shuri as Namor and immediately she calls him Namor back. And it's just, I can understand the balance between the two pronunciations and there'll probably be like a massive civil war about which one's right. But it kind of felt a little bit just kind of pick one and stick to it especially with the fact that he's got a sort of Mexican heritage Namor kind of fits more than Namor well I found it really interesting how much they changed because as you already mentioned it's changed from Atlantis to Talacan there's the whole issue of like you say they've given him more of a sort of Mayan background and the original comic version it's not really supposed to be any sort of you know racial features in particular 
But he looks very like Mr. Spock. In fact, I'm convinced that when they were making Star Trek, somebody said, we need some ideas for how this alien should look. What about that guy in Marvel Comics? Yeah, that'll do. They have made those changes, but also they've changed his character subtly because I still don't know whether to say Namor or Namor. I always said Namor when I was reading comics with him in. But as you say, he goes right back to the 30s and he was, like you say, alongside Captain America in the original Human Torch, sort of fighting the Nazis in the Second World War. And he came back in very early in the Fantastic Four where they found him, where he'd been on land for so long that he'd lost his memory. I think he was living in sort of like a soup kitchen, basically. He's a character that I never really took to because I think people may have picked up on by now from these that I was never really that keen on characters that were aloof and omnipotent. Like, you know, I really didn't like the Inhumans in the comics. I very much didn't like Adam Warlock in the comics. And he belongs in that bracket to me. It was always a very sanctimonious view of the world and what was right for Atlantis, you know, even if it was wrong for everyone else. And the fact he thought he was entitled to Sue Storm instead of Reed Richards. I just never took to it. Apart from, there were reprints at one point of, in the 70s, during what's called the Bronze Age, when the comics code had been lifted and they did all kinds of experiments mental things they sent him off on his own the idea of being sort of that it was implied that he brought shame on atlantis for a reason but i think it was more that he felt atlantis had brought shame on him and he went off and he was having sort of environmentally aware adventures you know fighting pollution and so on there's one remarkable strip that was in an annual i had called the marvel superheroes where tiger shark who's an antagonist of his who was an olympic swimmer who finds a galleon in some mysterious mist that are full of stranded sailors from throughout history who happen to aged and threatens to bring them out as an invincible army and then the wow, second they come out really cool. of the mists they all sort of collapse and start aging and the two u-boat captains you know <laughs> go like, look at us we're in our 40s what are we supposed to do <laughs> but that was in time i really took to him and otherwise i genuinely used to find him a bit irritating really but he was at one point one of marvel's most popular characters when they first did cartoons in the 60s he was one of the ones that had his own cartoon there was nearly tv series in the 70s but i think his prominence waned quite a lot after after that and i remember because one of the reasons he's taken so long to appear was universal had the rights to do a submariner film which they acquired at the same time as they acquired the rights to the hulk and i remember thinking really when i heard that i thought do enough people <laughs> know who he is but this has really pushed him back into public prominence in a more likable form in my opinion that is yeah it's interesting because he is the antagonist of this film but you can tell that they are sort of setting him up to possibly play a different role in the future because at the end he says that Wakanda and Talokan are now allies and the way that he, when he first brings Shuri to Talokan and tells her his story the way that they sort of bond is the fact that he grew up in what is now Mexico in the 1500s and his land was taken over by European colonists and his people were captured and enslaved and while that never happens to Wakanda in the story it's a very big unavoidable African trauma because this film doesn't really not as much as the first one it doesn't dive into the black story as much as the first film does with Killmonger's motivations and things like that but there's very much that connection between you know someone from Africa and someone from native uncolonized Mexico both coming from places where European colonizers have kind of taken over and destroyed and so I think they paint him as a sympathetic figure who does want to look after his people and cares for his people I do have to say I thought the part where they went to Talacan was a little overly long and felt a bit Avatar it made me think I don't need to see Avatar 2 now especially when you consider Talacan and they're trying to introduce this new world and I think this especially after we saw the funeral scenes at the beginning of Wakanda I think in the whole of the Marvel Universe Wakanda is the one culture the one sort of place where we know their customs the most we learned the most about them and we've only seen that in two films whereas somewhere like Asgard we've seen in over four films and we still don't really know everything about their culture whereas Wakanda partly because they were taking it from lots and lots of different existing African cultures but you really really get a sense of what that place is like and what the people are like and especially with Shuri who likes to shirk the traditions of her people and when you compare Wakanda's rich portrayal with Talokan where you get a bit of backstory but other than that that's kind of it you see a giant glowing orb which is apparently is a sun and it's never explained how that works it's just you know waving the vibranium magic wand and so I kind of feel like Talokan itself wasn't well developed but I think Namor was a very good character and I 
am saying Namor because his name is taken from without love Namor I don't know the exact Spanish I like Namor as a character I think he's a sympathetic antagonist and I would be interested in seeing him again I think Talakan could have done with a little bit more development even though I also think it had a bit too much screen time well that brings me on to my one real criticism of the I mean I don't think as a movie full stop it quite hits the mark and I think like you say there are a lot of understandable reasons for that but I genuinely think it's too long and there's too much going on in it. Nearly everything you've said, I've thought, oh, we need to talk about that as well, don't we? It seems to have more in it than Avengers Endgame did. And I would say there's a contrast between Iron Man 3 had too many things going on, but almost made the virtue of that. It made it into a sort of head-spinning, full-throttle experience. But this, it just felt like there was so much going on, but really, really slowly. And it just felt like too much. In fact, as we'll come back to, there's a whole strand in it that I did see the point of at all yes we went over how long my synopsis was at the beginning we didn't even mention the fact that nakia has a son so there is a new t'challa on the scene we also didn't mention that martin freeman appears as well he makes a return as everett ross and apparently he was married to valentina allegra de fontaine whose character seems to be completely different in this than she was in any of the previous stuff and i'm still not entirely sure why she was there i can understand why everett Ross is there because he is one of the characters from the original film and he provides the connection to America that they need for Riri Williams but it does feel like he's there because they needed a reason for him to be in the film rather than there actually being a genuine reason for that. I have to say I've seen this film twice now. The first time I watched it, I always think now that you should form an opinion on a film only after you've seen it twice. The first time when you know nothing and the second time when you know everything. The first time I watched it, I was thinking there is a massive hole in this film left by Chadwick Boseman not being here. It felt like the film was a cast of supporting characters with no lead. But the thing is, on the second viewing, I kind of liked it a lot more because those characters had more time to flourish in a way, with a couple of exceptions. But I don't think that Martin Freeman and Julie Louis-Dreyfus were two of them. I'd agree with that completely. That was my experience from a second view of it but it did highlight to me all this stuff they put into it there was one really important thing that was not even alluded to which is who led Wakanda during the snap and the second I thought of that that may be a little bit unimpressed at how Okoye is treated in this because I cannot imagine a situation where she wasn't largely in charge and then suddenly it's, you know, you've done one thing very slightly wrong in the middle of your outstanding record of loyalty to Wakanda, off you go. And that really doesn't sit well with me. I can kind of understand that because I think this whole film, the whole theme of the film is sort of rage through grief, especially with Shuri as well. Like, I think that's the reason why she meets Killmonger when she goes to the ancestral plane is because she's still in the revenge side of grief and so her darker tendencies are coming out that's the reason why she meets Killmonger and not Chadwick and not her father not her mother and so I can kind of understand the Queen's motivations because she's already grieving the loss of her son and she's possibly grieving the loss of her daughter and now she has no children left so in that moment I can completely understand why she perhaps again overreacts and straight Okoye of her rank but then again Okoye was trusted with a job and she failed however with regards to the snap do we ever know that Queen Ramonda was snapped we know that Shuri was and we know that Mbaku and Okoye weren't but we don't actually find out what happens to Queen Ramonda I don't think so although I did like the fact that they actually acknowledged it because I think for such a huge thing as Thanos' snap was there's quite a lot of people that uh, this enormous moment that would have changed everyone's lives it's something that happened to literally everyone and it never gets mentioned and I like the fact that they mentioned it in this because that's the reason why Nakia has like a five, six, seven year old son is because she would have been pregnant when Thanos' snap happened and she fled to Haiti and raised her son when she wasn't snapped so I do like the fact that they actually did tie it in to that I'm still not a fan of the fact that they've tied in Valentina into this and I think it's quite possibly because she hadn't really done anything for a couple of years and they needed to fit her in somewhere just to keep that sort of thread dangling 
Because what's the next thing she's going to be in? Is it going to be Thunderbolts or possibly Captain America 4? I mean, that's 2024 you're talking there. Well, I think we will come back to the whole higgledy-piggledy production of this because I think it is really important in terms of understanding this and, you know, a couple of other things around it and why they didn't maybe quite do what they set out to do. But I wanted to just mention, I was really glad. I know a lot of people, and I understand this, were very underwhelmed that Killmonger was in one scene. But I thought all along, I couldn't understand the calls for him to return, especially the people saying he should replace Chadwick Boseman, which was, you know, I consider Killmonger a fantastic one-off villain. You can't even say villain, one-off antagonist, because I don't think he was really a villain at the end of the day. But I always felt that's where it should go. And to be honest with you, the episode of What If About Him sort of underlines that point. It does really show that there wasn't that much left to do with that character. And I think they found the perfect way to bring him back in. Because one thing that I think hasn't been commented on much at all is that most of the key conversations in the whole film are between women and not about men and the two major conversations that occur with male characters and Barku basically says I'm sorry no don't ask me for help you've got my entire confidence I've seen what you can do and Killmonger basically says why are you worrying about what other people think do what you think is appropriate and they both deflect the idea you know the traditional sort of Hollywood thing of well a man has to have the decision and have the idea and I don't think that's been really commented on very much at all it hasn't and I do think that's something that is something that I was thinking about that on the second rewatch I was like this is a film that because the first film was an all black cast and this second film is almost entirely an all black female cast with the exception of you've got Martin Freeman, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and then Tenor Cuerta who plays Namor they're the only real three main characters everyone else is black and most of the rest of are black women the one thing i would say to that is that the film has chadwick like going all the way through it his presence and his absence is felt in almost every scene and most of the characters motivations are because of the loss of him so i think it's hard to say whether it passes the beckdale test or not because you know shuri's motivations are because she's grieving the loss of her brother ramonda's motivations are because she's grieving the loss of her son i think it's difficult to say that the male involvement is almost negligible in this film but it is still something that has to be championed and also i like the fact that this is sort of this film is sort of the next step forward in terms of what should be sort of progressive representation and that the first film was about you know the first black leading superhero with an all-black cast and it celebrated the fact with the main antagonist and the main antagonist's motivations being about the black story and this one is the next step which is that they barely mention it you know it almost has nothing to do with it it's just a cast of characters it's a family it's a brilliant story there are two very small references to the fact that they're black but other than that it's just a great cast and that is the next step forward which is that the first step is acknowledging it and representing it the second step is just having it just not matter and just to be about the people involved and the characters involved and i think it's brilliant that it takes that next step like i said earlier i thought it was the film felt like a cast of supporting characters unfortunately a lot of those supporting characters in the first film were women but now on the second viewing they all share the spotlight it's a fantastic thing to see and hopefully we see more of it i was going to say it does pass the sexy lamp test if not necessarily the back test then i realized martin freeman could be replaced by a sexy <laughs> i'm sure that's the only time that sentence has ever been uttered but the killmonger thing it does occur to me there are people still going on now about he should be brought back and yet that the same people who want agents of shield stricken from the record for no reason i do not understand that at all i really don't get why you would be so determined to bring back somebody there isn't much point bringing back in any capacity other than the, the way he appears in this film at the same time wanting to do away with everything else just because i think if there's one thing we've learned from the internet is that you cannot understand angry men on the internet well you cannot understand anyone who doesn't like agents of shield full stop to be <laughs> honest i do think we've been more critical of the film and i do want to share some positives on it i mean we have to start with angela bassett because yeah. angela bassett is an absolute acting tour de force in this i think all of the women in this film are i mean julia louis dreyfus she doesn't have much you know grief acting to do but she's brilliant and everything but leticia wright and lupita nyongo and angela Bassett between them I think is Angela Bassett the first woman to get her Oscar nominated for acting in a superhero film whether it's you know 
giving the UN a complete bollocking or whether she's the brilliant, brilliant monologue. That scene between her and Okoye where she's stripping Okoye of that rank, I think that might be the best acting in the entire MCU. And I'm even including Fitz and Simmons in the LMD arc of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. when I say that because she was absolutely just phenomenal. I don't really understand why they felt the need to kill her off. You know, the characters are all grieving from Chadwick's loss. It felt a bit much. I mean, I guess they wanted Namor to make a statement and I guess maybe Angela Bassett didn't want to do any more so it might have been her choice but it felt a bit much to kill off her character and leave I'm like why would you do that to poor Shuri you know she's literally lost everyone now and honestly that just means that we don't get Angela Bassett anymore and that made me I think that was the thing that annoyed me more than anything else to do with the narrative it's just I wanted more Angela Bassett because she is just yeah I think she's the best actor I've ever seen in one of these films she is an absolute tour de force well there is that weird obsession people have it's a weird criticism that always seems to come back to anything sort of halfway dramatic but fantastic that you know is successful is people say word and never kill characters off why do you need to i have never understood that as a criticism why does anyone particularly want to see that i don't understand why people see that as some kind of important benchmark of drama i wonder if it was because i don't think it adds any real other than the performance and the script which i cannot fault i don't think as an actual creative decision it adds much emotionally to what's already a very emotional film yeah i think the attack by talokan on wakanda which is spectacular by the way i think she could have been you know knocked into the hospital she could have i just i'm not entirely sure it was necessary but then again that's not to say that you know all deaths are un necessary or that all deaths are necessary it's just it depends on the context i mean i can think of a couple of things recently i mean people still have that debate about black widow and especially when it's a female character getting killed off you know there's certain terms that people like to throw around when it comes to films where it doesn't really apply in this film because it's an almost an entirely female cast but unless we actually hear it from the creators themselves then i I think we just have to accept that that was what they wanted to do and sometimes they'll get it right sometimes they won't i'm wondering if their motivation was that they needed a reason for Shuri to want to become the Black Panther because for most of the film she doesn't want the Black Panther back. She thinks that it's a relic of the past and she thinks that Wakanda doesn't need it anymore and then it was only after the grief and the rage of losing her mother that made her want to try and recreate the herb and especially now she's got this new discovery of the stuff that she stole from Talakan that can help her try and recreate it. I'm going to miss Angela Bassett's character but I can kind of understand if that's why they went the route that they did. You forgot to Venmo me. I slipped my mind. It's uh, 800, right? 800 was yesterday's price. It's a ban today. That's predatory. I, I built the whole robotic hand. You just corrected the grip algorithm? How great did you get? Thanks. Is that an iPhone I see? Primitive. We have located the scientist. She is in the American equivalent of a Wakandan village school. A school? Please tell me it is a professor. It's a student, mother. We can't give her to Nemo. Bring this student back to Wakanda. I've got it from here. Wait, maybe I should speak with her. It will be more discreet. I can be discreet. What? Nothing. This is the makeup. No. It's the wrong shade, isn't it's it? It's the right shade. 2440, you look good. I can blend in as a student. I can do this. Get five minutes. Well, I'm going to say who I thought was particularly brilliant in it, who doesn't seem to have got much attention, really, is Dominique Thorne as Riri. I thought was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I slightly do think there wasn't enough depth given to Riri's backstory. So, essentially, she just plays the role of a teenager who invents something, gets out of control. She has to be bailed out a bit by other people, but then comes good in the end. But I thought she approached the role really well. She captured, because they've toned Riri down a little bit attitude-wise from the comic incarnation but she captured that 
absolutely spectacularly. And I hope that because part of the problem was it's essentially a film where she was playing a teen at MIT, but a teenager in amongst a load of very sort of emotionally weary and in some cases damaged adult characters. And there wasn't really anyone for her to relate to. I mean, even Shuri is at a real remove from Riri's life experience. And that's why I'm really hoping, given that we've got so many other young Avengers appearing, could be given so much more background and depth, like Kamala, like Kate, like even Patriot in his very minor appearance so far. They were given a little more sort of substance. And I hope they team her up with them soon so she can interact with them and really, really, really get into this character. I completely agree. And there's actually one of my favorite lines is just after it's between M'Baku and Shuri, where M'Baku says it's something like you have lost too much to still be considered a child or something like that. Because I think canonically Shuri is something like 19 or 20 at this point. And yeah, when you compare Riri Williams to the other young Avengers we've got, we've got um, Kate Bishop who I think was brilliant. Kamala Khan, who is amazing. But then you've also got people like America Chavez. I think America Chavez kind of suffers from the same thing where she's around Doctor Strange. And again, she doesn't have much in the way of character development or anything to go on. Riri Williams already has her own, I think it's a series she's getting with Ironheart. I thought Dominique Thorne was brilliant as her. I have to say, I agree that I think they've almost done, they've done the sort of Iron Man story with her because she is Ironheart. She has her own sort of Iron Man suit by the end of it. But they've done almost like three Iron Man films worth of progression in the space of how much screen time does she have? Maybe an hour at most, because you see her first Iron Man suit, which is literally just a bunch of things, you know, stuck together with string. And then the next suit that you see is the sort of the full Wakandan technology with the massive shoulders. Why does it have massive shoulders on it? (laughs) When I saw it, it reminded me of uh, Samus Aran, who is the main character in Nintendo. Nintendo's Metroid games. If you ever see pictures of her in her spacesuit, she has like massive orbs on her shoulders, which means she can't look left and right. If she wants to turn left or right, she has to turn at the waist. It's it's ridiculous. But the point with Riri's suits is that with Tony Stark, you saw him build his first suit in a cave out of a box of scraps. And then slowly you saw him workshop it and go through all the different developments, all the different phases where the first few were clunky and they were all physical and they had to come together. And with Riri, you've gone from box of scraps to Wakandan technology, nanotechnology, whatever it is. And those are the only two suits that we see her in. It's quite possible that she might not have the Wakandan suit in the next one. She might go back and have to build it herself because the Wakandans don't want her taking their technology back or whatever. But it reminded me of like someone who decides to, they decide to build cars and their very first car is like a little stock kit car and their second car is a Lamborghini. It was so slick and powerful with jet engines and all this and it felt like too much of a progression in too little of a time it felt like too a bit too sleek like a sports car so hopefully she learns and hopefully she manages to you know get some smaller shoulders on the next one but i am really looking forward to seeing Ironheart again i think she does have some great potential going forward i still can't get away from the fact that it does feel too long even though it's good i'm trying to be you know i must sound like i didn't like this i actually really enjoyed it it wasn't quite top tier for me but I cannot get past the fact that it did actually feel just a bit too long and you mentioned the telecon sequences for me it was Namor's backstory went on too much it was a bit too literal everything that happened to him was depicted very very obviously on screen it could have done with trimming and not just the Martin Freeman and Julia Louis-Dreyfus bits I think it needed judicious editing but I understand that they probably it might have felt too much too emotionally raw to go back and be ruthless with it because they may not have been in the right frame of mind. It would have been something... I imagine that they wanted to get out there and sign off on and not necessarily move on, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I do think the parts that could have been cut, because I think I understand why they needed Everett Ross to get to America to find out where Riri Williams is and then collect her. But after that, America's not involved at all. You know, they have that scene at the start, that quite creepy scene where the Talocanians, I don't know what the demonym is for people from Talocan, the Talocanadians, I don't know, that really creepy scene where the American Navy ship is there and they do the singing and make them all walk to their death and then just shoot the helicopter out of the sky. There's that. But then once you get out of Massachusetts, 
America's not involved at all in the story. The final battle takes place between Wakanda and Talokan. The big sequences before that take place in Wakanda and Talokan. And just randomly, you will then just cut back to Washington, D.C. or wherever they are for a domestic between Martin Freeman and Dewey Louis Dreyfus. And the only time that you see them, like he gets arrested and then Okoye breaks him out at the end. Those whole scenes could have been in like an extended version. They were completely surplus to the rest of the story. And I do wonder if that was maybe a choice that they made later on to try and make it feel more connected. I do think they're trying to make Valentina Allegra de Fontaine sort of the next Nick Fury. But her characterization in this, where she was suddenly sort of the ex-wife of Everett Ross, is she the head of the CIA? If so, then why did she show up at the end of Black Widow ordering Yelena to kill Hawkeye? What's her story? Story there. Why is she recruiting John Walker? What's she got in mind for him? And then she's very sinister in those. And then suddenly she's sort of just breaking into Everett Ross's kitchen and they're having a bit of a domestic. It didn't feel like the same character almost. I do wonder if it's a little more, this is a slightly cynical view, but a bit simpler than that, which is that when you look at it, this had, for obvious reasons, had quite a long sort of production lead in, but it wasn't originally supposed to be part of Phase 4. It's just that everything bunched together because of the pandemic. And like with a number of other films and series, I think those bits with them were left in because, and they look to me like they've been very, almost paired to the bone in the editing so there were just specific lines left in because it's clearly setting up something down the line whether it's secret invasion whether it's thunderbolts or whatever and they could not take that out but given how much that happened in other things around them i appreciate and i'm the biggest defender of the fact that they had to make all this stuff while it was almost impossible to make things somebody should have said right halt stop everyone let's just make sure we're on the same page with a couple of things and then move forward because it seems like like that wasn't done at all and when you consider that sony went out of their way to change venom let there be carnage and morbius <laughs> in reaction to the fact they've been delayed and other things were going on in the main marvel series then i do feel like the ball has been dropped slightly there and there maybe should be a tighter quality control but then again like i say everything was bunched up and this had the misfortune i think part of the reason it had it's fair to say it had a mixed or lukewarm reaction as a whole with the wider world and i think that's because it ended up between werewolf by night and the guardians of the galaxy holiday special both of which do as much as a full-length film in an hour and i think it inevitably suffers in indirect comparison to them i think the other thing is that it's one of those films where the title character isn't in it for the first three quarters of the film and there's no indication if the title character is going to show up if this is just like the sort of legacy of that i remember when we talked in our black widow episode about how that was a superhero film that didn't have any superheroes in it and this kind of felt the same you've got namor who is superpowered but in terms of the main cast the protagonists of the film none of them have any superpowers and they are just you're feeling the loss of that and so putting it in between werewolf by night and the holiday special i think because this was a cinematic release and this was a major major thing i think it will have had more of an impact than those two with all due respect to them because i think they're fantastic but the fact that they are basically short films on disney plus they're not going to be box office in the same way that black panther was and i think following on from thor and before that would have been doctor strange these are highly anticipated sequels and the first sequels to involve characters that were in the Avengers films Black Widow being a prequel obviously I think there's the anticipation and obviously it also doesn't have the impact of the first one because it doesn't have the novelty we're not meeting Wakanda for the first time we're not meeting these characters for the first time so kind of like it's got the same sort of sequel issues that all the others have where they're trying to tell an interesting story with characters we've already met but they no longer feel fresh. And because they're mourning someone who's no longer there, the tone is different, the feeling is different, but they're also trying to introduce new characters at the same time. They're spinning a lot of plates while also trying to account for the fact that some plates have been lost. The film has to do an awful lot in what isn't a very long runtime, but at the same time feels like it's also too long. Given the circumstances of what they had to go through, I think they've more than done a good enough job. I think objectively speaking, in years to come, it probably won't 
won't be viewed as well. But I think with the context of it all, it's a very, very good achievement. And I hope that there's a third one where they can get back on their feet with Shuri as the Black Panther. And we can see all these characters again, because I love these characters. I love spending time in Wakanda and I want to see what they do next. I do wonder if there's an extent to which, and this is a positive point in a way, so I hope it comes across as such, that maybe, maybe for the moment, it is a little too emotionally gruelling for people who would be invested in it. And that is always going to make it feel like a more depressing experience. Now, I remember the feeling that I was queuing for very weird experience, record store day under social distancing conditions when the news broke about Chadwick. And I remember that feeling. And it's the same sort of feeling I currently sort of view Wakanda Forever with. It's very hard to shake that. And I think maybe that, in a way, it wasn't as much fun to watch as it should have been. I wasn't looking forward to it in the same way that I'd be looking forward to, say, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, for example. It felt more like... I don't want to say something you had to do, because that's not what I mean, but do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think people want to see the film, but they also... They're still they're coming to terms with it. You know, this film is coming out two and a bit years after Chadwick, and so people have sort of gone through the stages of grief. And now they're having to live through it all again, especially with 2021. We had What If and we had Chadwick's last ever recordings in that. And that would have opened up the wound again. And then this film, because he's I mean, the way that they present it is just beautiful. If there's one thing that they absolutely nail in this film, it is the tributes to him. The film starts with the in-universe explanation for his death. And then it opens with the Marvel Studios logo sequence about five, six, seven minutes in. It's not at the start of the film it is the one that they had that is just Chadwick the one that fades to purple which is the Black Panther's colour and it's entirely silent the entire thing you give the audience a moment after the in-universe death you give the audience a moment to just collectively catch their breath and just come to terms with this is happening this has happened and we're going to be here for the next two and a half hours now and we're going to deal with it together the audience and the characters the way that they do it at the end as well where at the end of the film shuri goes to the beach in haiti and she burns her funeral clothes which is one of the wakandan customs where that marks the end of the grieving process and she has refused to do it because she doesn't want to stop grieving and then it flashes back through shots of chadwick from previous films i think that's when the rihanna song starts playing and another thing we have to see this film's score the music in this film once again they've knocked it out of the park with the music they did it in the first black panther film they did it in this one throughout the film even in the parts where i was a little bored of what was going on on screen the music was absolutely perfect and then in the mid-credit scene they close it by having nakia introduce shuri to her nephew prince t'challa jr it delivered a lovely bookend to the whole thing starting with t'challa's death and ending with hope for the future and that a new generation is coming so i I think that was the one part of the film that they absolutely nailed and that was the part that mattered in all honesty it didn't matter what the rest of the plot was didn't matter about the action or anything else the convoluted appearances by side characters or connections to the wider world the most important thing this film had to be was a tribute to chadwick boseman and that was the part that they absolutely hit the nail on the head with well i think a measure of how well they succeeded with that is i have noticed that neither of us have really made any jokes about it at all which we're normally even with stuff we absolutely love like agent of shield we do tend to when we talk about these things make a lot of comic observances yes yeah to the extent that i've been thinking throughout this about one of the bits that i think goes on too long is the fight on the sort of wakandan battle cruiser stroke ocean liner which it really does go on and you can't see what's going on half the time but i've been trying to think it reminds me of either a slice of cake or a certain kind of dessert and i've been thinking throughout what is it it reminds me of it's almost like i don't want to know because i don't want to be you know I don't want to bring a note of levity into talking about this, but there you go, I've just done it. This is the one thing. I cannot get my head around this, and I feel I have to say it. I guess I can only put it down because, like, Shuri is the new queen. She is filled with rage, and therefore there must be some irrationality to what she is thinking. Because why? (laughs) Why? Your enemy lives in the ocean. They get their strength from the water. (laughs) Why would you go to the ocean 
to fight them. That's where they're strongest. They are literally water people. They have infinite numbers. They literally cannot survive on land. And you're on one narrow boat or cake or whatever it is <laughs> with no exit strategy. One boat. And then guess what happens? They blew up your boat. Like, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> And I just, I'm going to put it down to grief stricken, like, because no, like, sensible, well thinking person is going to think that's a good idea. And they don't even win. That's the thing is that at the end of the film, Namor and Shuri as Black Panther are having a fight on the beach. She decides to spare him because she repeats one of the best parts of the film. She repeats Black Panther's line from Civil War vengeance has consumed us i will not let it consume me and they call a truce and they decide to be allies they then fly back to the ship where the talacans have the wakandans cornered on the bow of the ship ready to make them walk the plank like they are getting their arses handed to them i can't believe anyone ever would have thought that was a good idea like take him to the sahara desert take him to i don't know nebraska take it like somewhere landlocked he can swim up rivers. He managed to get into Wakanda by swimming inland to the center of Africa, to a landlocked African country by swimming hundreds of miles up a river because apparently Wakanda's barrier stops at the water surface. He can just swim right under that, apparently. Isn't there a river tribe who are very keen on security and have those magic shields? I guess they just, oh, I don't know. Like they, um, Maybe he vibraniumed his way in. Maybe that's their sort of get-out clause for that sort of thing. I liked the strategy of them... Like, like sort of building like a sauna inside the ship to try and dry him out and weaken him. Like all I had in my head when that was happening was Eddie Izzard in the Death Star canteen going, death by dry it shall be. But then the problem is that now we know what his weakness is if he ever comes back. If he does end up like in Secret Wars or something like that, end up in Battle World or whatever it's called, like there's going to have to be some water there. Hopefully there's some water there. Otherwise he's completely done for. Do you know what? It's now making me think of the Derek and Clive sketch about the Titanic only with a Cafe Nero cappuccino cake instead instead of it but that's what it looks like i finally figured it out but i was going to say because we're getting to a lighter note there i would have liked we've already mentioned the mid-credit scene and you know it was great i would have loved to have had a post-credit scene that was just lighter in a different direction whether it was really going off and knocking the door and say hi are you kate bishop or something or whether we just seen shang chi or kingo or somebody you know i would have liked something at the end just to just finish on a an upbeat note, a forward-looking, a positive note, just to emphasise the positivity that came out of everything in the main film itself. I can understand that. I think there is some positivity in T'Challa Jr. being there. I think that's a happy moment, especially when they say he got to meet Queen Ramonda. I quite like that. My worry is, because it seems like they are teasing a lot of stuff that isn't going to happen for a while yet. Yeah, but that's what I meant. We could have seen somebody that we've not seen for <laughs> appeared at least that'll be yeah. something whether it's shang chi or whether it was star fox or any of these people where seeds have been planted and have just been left in the ground and haven't been watered at all to be honest after seeing ms marvel i just want every single post credit scene to have kamala khan in it like i would be happy with that for the rest of time i just want kamala khan forever i know what you mean and i think especially because unless you follow the news and you follow all the rumors and everything like that you're not going to know that riri williams is a character that's going to stick around and with every other one like with kate bishop and ms marvel and that they've obviously had series to get all that but you know we had the post credit scene at the end of shang chi where he met captain marvel so we know that he's going to stick around i would have liked to see some kind of sign that iron heart is going to make a return or even just like just a little thing of her landing back in mit and just a little caption appears that says iron heart will return they've done that for loads of other ones why not do something like that but then I can also see them making the choice that they didn't want a post-credit scene because they wanted to mirror Tony Stark. I can understand it going both ways. I'm kind of okay with them not having one. I don't think everything needs to be a tease. It would have been nice, but we also get teases at the end of every single Marvel TV show as well now. So we're getting a dozen teases a year for various things. I this one slide. Speaking of the final battle, Okoye's suit, the big blue bird-like costume that she hated 
what was going on? Like, like, what, 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 what? It's actually got to be electric elephants, isn't it? I don't know what it's supposed to be. Okoye obviously loathes the thing. It's, the thing is, it's Shuri that's designed it, and everything else that Shuri's designed has been so. Like, how does Ironheart get a badass Lamborghini suit, and Okoye gets a sort of Egyptian god cosplay kind of thing? Especially when we see in the fight in Boston on the bridge, Okoye. It's one of the coolest fights in the MCU. Just Okoye going up against the Talokans, one by like on her own with a spear. She is an absolute legend and absolutely kicking their ass. And then for the final fight, she's put in this kind of weird sort of flight suit that, as far as I know, doesn't seem to it doesn't enhance her abilities or anything like that. She's more than capable without it. What on earth is going on there? Outside of the color, I don't have much positive to say about it, to be honest. My two favourite characters in the Black Panther universe are Okoye and M'Baku. I think M'Baku is, he's great comic relief. To be honest, the banter between all of them is great in this. I mean, whether it's Okoye and Shuri talking about makeup when they visit MIT, or whether it's like M'Baku calling Okoye a bald-headed demon, he's got some great comic relief and some really great lines as well. And one of the things that I loved at the end was seeing M'Baku challenging for the throne unopposed at the end and i love that for two reasons one because it lifts the weight of shuri and that she doesn't have to be queen of wakanda she can be black panther she can focus on her tech and she doesn't have to worry about ruling the country as well but also because if mbaku is challenging for the throne after the death of queen ramonda that means there must have been a challenge after the death of t'challa and all i can picture now is queen ramonda on that waterfall beating the shit out of Mbaku and that's something that I <laughs> I understand why we didn't see it on screen but that is something that I'm just going to imagine actually happened that Angela Bassett just beat the shit out of Winston Duke on that waterfall and won the right to claim the throne you could have taken out all of the Martin Freeman and Dewey Louis Dreyfus scenes and stuck that in also, first time, speaking of Namor, the word mutant is uttered in the MCU, I believe. Because I think Ms. Marvel has the word mutation in it, but I think Namor describes himself as a mutant. So there we go. That's the first official mutant in the MCU. One of the best pieces of music from the first film, and it comes back in Infinity War, is the Wakanda theme itself. And the first time we hear it in this sequel, it's kind of like when the James Bond film first kicked in, in the Daniel Craig James Bond films, where it's not in the entire film until quite close to the end and because you've waited that long to hear it it makes all the difference the first time you hear the Wakanda theme in this is when Shuri and Namor have called the truce and the battle is over and Shuri says Wakanda forever which is the first time you hear that phrase in the film the Wakanda theme kicks in in a big way and it's just it's fantastic it's a big payoff to you know a questionable third act I think it's fair to say but that's a huge payoff at the end and I really like that okay well there's only one thing left for me to ask now David, if you had a 71 Plymouth Cuda that was sort of built up as if it was some kind of Knight Rider style techno electronic armoured car, but really it's just a snazzy car that goes a bit fast... What would you use it for? I think at this point, I'd still prefer Lola from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because that car could fly. I'll, you know, The snazzy Plymouth can be my second car for going a bit fast. But I think when you've got a flying car, that's going to be the number one. You know, the fast cars for the rainy days. Careful, you're almost calling Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cannon, huh? Oh, no, I'll be fired with an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cannon if I'm not careful. David, thank you and Excelsior. Thanks very much, Tim. Pleasure as always. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.